Welcome to Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God's Speaker Step Series. We're going to have Joseph come up and tell our joke. Hello, everyone. I am uh, Joseph, the joke teller. I have uh, a great joke for you. This is from conference-approved literature, The Grapevine. Yes, it's official, yes. Um, all right, so here, here's the joke. <clears throat> How come if alcohol kills millions of brain cells, it never killed the ones that made me want to drink? Mental obsession, eh? they're, they're tricky. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Joseph. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is James. Thank you for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that might make noise or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. If everybody's ready, we're going to start the meditation.
So we're going to say the fog light prayer. If you're not sure what that is, they're listed on the screens. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Kat to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Uh, hi, I'm Catherine, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, it's great to be here. Just want to say that. Um, this is Spiritual Experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that the, these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular. Uh, spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a, undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. Self With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped in an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatic, emphatically, uh, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. Uh, that principle is contempt prior to investigation, Herbert Spencer. Thank you, Kat. 
Please refrain from disturbing others by talking constantly, getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so turn your phone off or put it on silent. Uh, we have Pete M. speaking tonight. Such a treat. I feel like I haven't heard you speak in quite some time, so let's give Pete a nice round of applause. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, great to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it's great to be back here. Um, it's been way before COVID when I was here, and it's great to be a part of this group. And I thank Michael and, and the group for asking me to fill in tonight. I have no idea who's coming after me, but I know I'm here tonight, so I guess that's a good thing. Um, June 23rd, 1988 is when a loving God separated me from alcohol. And uh, very grateful for this gift of sobriety. Um, I've said this from a million podiums. The longer I'm sober and the older I'm getting, um, I can't believe I just said the older I'm getting, but it seems to be, um, although it hurts at times, especially grateful for what God has removed from me. And it hurts at the beginning, but I travel lighter at the end. And it's the money and property and prestige piece, the things I thought I needed to be okay, the things I thought I needed to be a better man, a better AA member, a better uh, 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 member of society, all of those things. And very often they're, they're generated by what my mind thinks I need to be okay. So I start to head down this road, and it's usually the opposite road God wants me to walk down. So... Uh, in my morning prayer, I ask God to show me how to carry the vision of his will into all my activities. And I will tell you, on most days, I'm traveling light. And Mary and I have a lot of things going on the past few months, uh, leading up to a, a really spectacular day for the two of us. She's doing all the heavy lifting, and I'm sitting on the sidelines more nervous than she is watching this, this wedding about to happen. But um, carrying a vision of God's will into my activities... Uh, it seems to be my experience shows that more and more when I'm in line with God's will, when I'm practicing fidelity to God, when I'm putting nothing before this God, and even if I have to scratch and claw to stay in line with God's will, I travel a lot lighter. And there's enough to walk around with that can make the day heavy. A lot of distractions, a lot of thinking that can go on. And we're living in a world right now that's completely lost its mind, it's completely upside down. And somehow I get to navigate through all of this, especially when I can be really clear on what my primary purpose is. Why God brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is to stay sober which I do with his power in this fellowship, and then pass this on and help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. And when I'm locked into that, life gets very simple. Things get incredibly light. When I'm focusing on fixing things out there and life becomes my master, I find myself knocking on page 52's doorstep. And things get really heavy. On uh, June 23rd, 1988, I am uh, homeless and living in the streets living in an abandoned building with six treatment centers behind me and basically hoping I wouldn't wake up the next day. That's where my alcoholism took me. Some of us go to Park Avenue, some of us go to Park Bench before we can experience the truth where something happens deep in the soul where we get surrendered. I've been beat up, I've been locked up like many of us in this room, and I bounce back from that. I heal from that. But something about the emotional pain, it gets us in here, and you can't outrun that. 
Because even in sobriety, as much as out there, one thing I have found out, and it wasn't always pleasant, but the truth will always find me. I can hide out as long as I want. I can practice some unspiritual uh, things as long as I want, but the truth will find me. It always does. And what happened to me in 1988, the truth found me. And it wasn't a good day for me. I had no idea it was about to open up a door to let me out of hell. But in that moment, I felt like I was locked in. And leading up to June 23rd, 1988, guys, I just wish I wouldn't wake up. I tried to take my life, obviously unsuccessful. And I don't even know if it was a real attempt at it. But in that moment, I wanted out. I didn't want to do this anymore. I was convinced deep down in my, in my soul that I was one big mistake, that this whole thing called life, which is a four-letter word if I'm not careful, was just too painful. It was too cumbersome. It was too uh, uncomfortable. And I, I, I look back many times from, the, from when I was a little guy up until 1988, and there were many nice times in my family but most of them weren't. And there were things that happened to me as a little boy leading up to 1988 that were just awful. On top of that, I have this, this alcoholic monster who's controlling every move I make. My last couple of years out there, I stayed away from the IV narcotic stuff. But my outlook on life was coming out of that place. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was no different other than being physically sober. I was still operating out of woundedness. I was still operating out of alcoholism. And what I have almost 34 years later is alcoholism, not alcoholism. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, after my seven treatment center, there was a part of me that still believed that my alcoholism came in a bottle of whiskey because I would hear some of the old timers saying, put the plug in a jug, don't drink and go to meetings. So my mind said, it must be the problem is in that whiskey bottle. But here I am not drinking and I'm completely Looney Tunes my first six months in AA. I was not okay. But my mind had me believing I'm not that bad. I'm really okay. I'll just go to another meeting, trim off the edges a little bit and I'll be okay. I was not okay. And so in 1988, uh, I don't really believe AA is going to work for me. In fact, my mind had me believing that AA was for good, upstanding, well-to-do people who came in here with the drinking problem because the folks would bring meetings into, into treatment. AAs would bring meetings into treatment. And I had a couple of runs in AA, always drunk. And everyone just appeared to be much better looking, smarter, and dressed better than I was. So my mind locked into that says I have no business being in there. I knew my church wasn't never going to work. And there was no way I was going to walk into another treatment center and do another detox and talk about my feelings for 30 days again. It's not going to happen. And who am I kidding anyway? That person who showed up in AA with all of those attitudes was the same guy who showed up to his first drink at 14 years old, completely upside down, not having a grip on anything. Now, I don't expect any 14-year-old to really know how to navigate through life, but a 14-year-old should have some hope, some aspirations, should have a group of friends. And going through that early adolescence like a lot of us did, it was, it was unbelievable. It was, it was debilitating for me. 
because I showed up to the street corner. I showed up to my friends with a lot of ghosts in the background. Ages around 8 to 10 growing up, I, I was being molested by someone. So how do you show up to a street corner and say, you know, I've been molested? You, you can't do that. What kid is going to even grip that? And what school teacher is going to, what's she going to do with it? The person who was doing to me swore to me that bad things were going to happen to me if I told anyone. And so I'm walking with fear with this monster on my back. I had a mom at home who was alcoholic and had a lot of narcotics she was taking regularly. And I don't know how many trips to uh, the psych wards we did with her and the suicide attempts that she had. And I believe no one in my neighborhood knew about it. Everyone knew about it. And when she finally succeeded in taking her life in 1974, I ran around telling my friends my mom died of cancer. I figured that was, people would get that, it's not so bad, poor woman, poor you. Everyone knew, everyone knew my mom took her own life. I remember uh, it was a cold winter, I mean it was brutal, uh, and I was in my grandparents' house. And my grandmother had like this Florida room in the front of the house, with this big bay window. And um, I remember looking out the window. I snuck into that room. My dad didn't want me out there because I could see onto the street. And he knew they had all the ambulance and all these other cars. And there was a whole investigation. Uh, when someone dies, they come in, they take notes. And I have no idea what's going on except for one thing. There was one point where this gurney gets rolled off into, onto like this ambulance, whatever the heck it was. And I realized underneath that sheet was my mom. And at that point, I remember thinking, this has to be a dream. This cannot be real. This is impossible that my mom, who I saw last night, is now being carted off. <clears throat> and about an hour or two later, my dad took uh, me and my brothers with my aunt into the basement and let us know exactly what took place. And it was the first visceral reaction I ever had. I remember I felt like someone hit me right in the face with the two-by-four, and I ran into the bathroom, and I locked the door, and all the tears came, and I was a puncher. I would punch things growing up. I'd put holes in walls, and i start ripping apart this bathroom. And my dad kicked the door open, and all he could do was hold on to me. I could not put my head around what I was just told and what I had saw a little bit earlier. So I show up to a street corner, <clears throat> and none of that's why I'm alcoholic, but they were pieces of the puzzle. And those pieces of the puzzle had to get resolved with outside help and in here. That just going to meetings and marking time on the calendar was not going to fix that. This process of recovery has shown me over and over and over again it's not linear, but it's, trans it's transformational. I need to do for me. I had to do something. I don't know what. I had to do something to heal this stuff. Because I would be using and coming out of that. I'd be sober and coming out of that place. How could God do this to me? How could these events happen to me? And it was the where does it hurt that never got fixed. And I think sometimes, you know, we're so focused on attendance at meetings, which is, which is obviously important. But what am I doing when I'm in a meeting? Am I running to the next meeting, which is totally cool. But what am I doing? What am I doing about getting soul food? What am I doing about healing this stuff? What am I doing about sitting with the sponsor and talking about this, purging all of this? 
And then I was introduced to our 12 steps, which does a whole lot, especially our four through nine, where it brings death to self and life to the spirit. But for me, just hanging around meetings, which I did in my first six months, I'm looking better. I'm feeling physically better. I have no post-acute withdrawal going on. And I have a little group of guys I'm hanging out with, but I'm not okay. Because this mind is still running to a lot of dark spots or reliving the past, which were too painful. At some point, to shut that down, I have a default button. It's called drink. That's what it does. And the thing about my alcoholism, it's never going to tell me, we're getting drunk later, we're going to get drunk tomorrow, we're going to get high tomorrow. It never announces its arrival. It just shows up, and there I am. And I know it's a really bad idea, but I'm, I'm called now. I can't get away from it. And somewhere in the middle of the drunk, I'm going, what am I doing? But it's too late now. Because I have something called an allergy. And when I drink alcohol, the craving's always intensified. It's never satisfied. So on June 23rd, 1988, um, I go from my first drink at 14, which was blissful, to 1988, where it's dismal. It's awful. And I've been homeless for a long time at this point and in the same clothes for way too long and hadn't bathed for way too long. And I'm dying of alcoholism. Uh, I weighed about 130 pounds at the time and I'm urinating blood and I'm running around with hepatitis C. I have these uh, construction boots and the right boot was missing a front. And I had these gray pants on. They were like workman's pants. Uh, you would see like mechanics wear. They were gray and they were bloodstained and soiled. And I remember this. I had a, black a brown turtleneck and a black jacket and I'm sweating and cold at the same time. That's withdrawal. So I wasn't the drunk who would go on a drunk and pull out and be good for a while and go on another drunk. I was drinking all the time, and when I would stop for a short time, it would be on me. I'm sweating and cold. My belly's not working. My hands are clammy. I'm filthy. I need a drink. And my alcoholism, and this, this can exist today even though I'm sober a few years, my alcoholism will pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort right now. Whether it's sex, food, money, gambling, whatever it is, whatever my outlet is, I will pay any price tomorrow to seek comfort today because I'm in AA sober, but I do not have a connection with God. And what I needed was a connection with God. What I needed was a oneness with God. What I needed was a relationship with God, the most intimate relationship I will ever have in my life. It is paramount. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the AA boot camp, sobriety is the number one priority. Sobriety is the number one priority. And it is a priority, obviously. But the truth is true until I discover a new truth. For me, conscious contact with God is my number one priority. Conscious contact with God, which means for me, I have a relationship with God. I have an intimate, ongoing relationship with God. I turn in in order to go out. When I'm doing that, I am, I'm sober. When I'm doing that, I'm not acting out. When I'm doing that, my mind's not taking me down dark alleyways. And yet I stumble and fall often. Okay. One day I might become enlightened being, spiritual being, but one thing I'm stuck with till God gives me my last breath, and that's human being, which means I will create a traffic jam and I'm the only guy on 95. I will just create stuff. And the thing about the mind is, I believe I am having these thoughts. 
I'm having these thoughts. You got to help me. That's a lie. I always thought that. Because if they were my thoughts, I can just get rid of them. You know, start your day over. Don't you love when they tell you that? Just start your day over. How? <laughs> How do I do this? Just like, okay, that didn't happen. Because wherever I go, here come my thoughts. And they make things worse and worse. And I'm down the rabbit hole. I don't have thoughts. They have me. And they lock in. And I can't get out. And they override everything except God. Conscious contact with God, the difference is the thoughts come. I get a lot of weird stuff come by, especially on 95. The difference is I'm not hooked into a hair. Oh, look at this one. This is beautiful. You know. Who hasn't thought about what they're going to do with the money when lottery numbers are called? Like the day before, I'm going to do, I'll give some to the church. <laughs> I'll take her all my friends, and the rest I'll count. You know, we do, we do weird stuff like this. But the thoughts have me. So I'm in, I'm in this hallway in uh, 1988. Now, I'll just share with you what happened to me. Um, <clears throat> I didn't see recovery about to happen. I didn't see God about to enter my life because he's never announced his arrival. He just shows up, even without my permission. But I remember lying on this floor, and I come to not wake up like I do now. I come to, and the day before is all over me. And you got to, like, clear out the cobwebs, and I can feel my body vibrating, which means I have no money, which means I got to go out on the street, which means I got to panhandle, hustle up some money, and then get to a liquor store. That might take an hour. How am I going to do a whole hour of this before I get a drink in me? I got to make this quick. And uh, I got up off the floor, and that's when things changed. Because when I stood up, I went right back down again. It was as if God took a, a, a stick and hit the back of my knees and I went down. Bill says something that's very, very uh, uh, important to me when he says the courage to do battle was not there. I had met my match. I was overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Now, I knew that it was over here for a long time. And on this particular day, it was in front of me. And when I got to the floor, it was as if God split me wide open. And I only could do as good as the light I'm standing in, even now. Because when I see someone inappropriate, acting out, things like that, I realize as frustrating as that behavior is, they're still in the dark, and that's all they're capable of doing, like I was, and have been sometimes. So what God had to do is, if you will, figuratively speaking, prime me wide open for his light to get in. And that's when perceptions start to shift. And I had this flash of my life of where I had been from my first drunk at 14, which I said was blissful, to now I'm a, I'm a homeless bum, literally living in, in an abandoned building and doing a lot of ugly things for the price of a drink. How'd I get here? And my family, who I hadn't thought of, or even miss, suddenly they were right in front of me. And I longed to be around my dad and my brothers because they had lives. I wanted to walk into my dad's house and have Sunday dinner like we used to. That was long gone. I wanted to take a shower. I wanted to shave. I wanted to brush my hair. I wanted to put on clean clothes. That was long gone. And I realized the condition I'm in, I'm going to die. And what came to me was, if I get a drink in me, which I really need right now, I'm going to roll over and die. 
Now, I don't know if that would have happened, but that was the feeling that came over me, and I didn't want that for the first time. I would welcome the idea the day before. But if I don't get a drink in me, I'm going to roll over and die. And I was in, in this place, this jumping off place. What do I do? Drink and die, don't drink and die. Oh, my God. And what begins to happen through surrender, through pain and suffering comes humility. Through pain and suffering, when I'm out of options, when there is no one to call, there's nowhere to go, I'm out of money, when I'm in that spot, when I've run out of road, for me, what do I do? I go back to the very same God who I hated, despised, and mocked and spat out for so long. It's the only refuge I can find right now is going back to God. I pray he's listening. And that's exactly what happened to me. I got surrendered. When I'm in a place... When we get to a place where we're out of options, I don't know what to do. Oh, my God, someone's got to help. And suddenly I find help coming. It's called surrendered. As long as I think, and I'm glad this didn't happen to me, as long as I'm thinking, well, I can go to detox, then I go to treatment, I got really good insurance, I have a lot of money, and then I'll go to uh, treatment, then I'll go to AA and come to Mike Chase's group and be a 12-week speaker. I'll be Moses in about 90 days. That's called self-reliance. I'm still operating out of the mind. I still know what needs to be. I know what I need to get better. That's not necessarily a good thing, not in my case. What God did for me in that day was erase everything other than him. And that was, please take me from this. I don't want to die, my exact words. I'll never forget them, I pray. Please take me from this. I don't want to die. I was not thinking about AA or detox, or treatment. First of all, I knew those places didn't work, and I was convinced, as I said, AA was for good people, not me. So this was nowhere to be found in my realm of thinking. And that, I look, live life forward and understand it backward. That was a God moment. It did not feel godly. It didn't smell godly. It didn't look godly. There was nothing that I can see was godly about it. It was a moment. Drink and die. Don't drink and die. What do I do? Survival. I don't know what to do. And in that surrender, suddenly, I go from here to here. I'll be at the infancy of living in the soul. But it began. See, big book says, in the 12 steps, it says, having had, so they're looking back on it, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps, etc. It's a guarantee. Tremendous promise. But the pilot light gets turned on the beginning of this spiritual transformation for me began on June 23rd, 1988, when I'm a homeless bum and I says, please help. That's when it begins. It didn't feel that way, but there was a shift. For the first time, I was listening to something that wasn't coming from me. Yeah? Please take me from this. I don't want to die. And then what happens? God rolls out the army. It's like a 911 to, to God, and here come the police to rescue me. Because what began to happen is God was connecting dots when I was incapable of doing any of this. That day, my dad was in Atlantic City, New Jersey, with his wife, and they were spending some time on a dinner and gambling and shows and things you do in AC. And as he tells the story, it was around, I don't know, 2.30 in the morning, whatever the heck it was. He was awakened out of his sleep, suddenly. And he had this intuitive feeling that he needed to go find me. 
And his wife woke up and he was getting dressed. He says, what are you doing? He says, I need to find my son, Peter. She thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. She says, we haven't spoken to where are you going, Atlantic City. God knows where he is. It's 2 o'clock in the morning, whatever the heck it was. I can't. See, when God calls us to do something, we can try to fight it off as much as we want. But it creates a lot of pain. We have to answer the call. And that's what he did. And he made his trek from Atlantic City, New Jersey, to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. That's about, about three hours, Brian, right? At least three hours. It was a long trek. And he's driving around the neighborhood, what we would call as the hood, looking for me. And somewhere during that day, he finds me standing on a street corner, tore up from the floor up, as we used to say. I mean, the, the condition I just described to you, this is how he finds me. I can't even, I don't have children. I can't even fathom what it's like to see, God forbid, my brother or loved one in that condition, dying of this thing called alcoholism. How did we all get here? I mean, my family wasn't butterflies and rainbows when you walked in the door when I was growing up. We had our stuff, but not to get here. And so when my dad found me, uh, he got out of the car and uh, he just called my name. And he was walking across the street. And when he called my name, the very first thing I tell him, after not seeing my dad or my family for quite some time, the first thing that comes out of my mouth is, Dad, I'm okay, I'm fine. He just kept walking. He didn't believe it. I mean, I can't, to take a look at yours truly in this condition. And when he got to me, again it changed. Because I remember he got close to me, and I kind of went limp, and I kind of collapsed, if you will, in his arms. And I remember his arms were under mine, and they were holding me up. And he was holding me close to him. Now, he and I never got along. We were cut from two different cloths. I was like hippies, and my dad was good fellas. Get the idea? It was just, we were just, my dad really thought he picked up the wrong baby at the hospital. And, uh, and we just, we just didn't gel. And when my mom died, it just got the wedge got even further away. And my dad, to this day, admits he was very difficult with me. He was hard on me. He knew it. It was his first go-around. There's no book on how to raise children. I was the first one, male-born, Italian-American family. I have to be Pope or president. Anything less than that is a failure. So in this moment, he's holding me real close to him, and uh, he kept repeating, I'm not going to lose my son to this over and over and over again. And I was placed in my seventh uh, treatment center. I would love to tell you uh, that I was the star pupil in treatment, but um, 10 days in there, and I'm driving everyone nuts. Not acting out. I got drama. As long as I'm, my eyes are open, I am walking, I'm walking, I'm a soap opera. I'm figuring out stuff in 20 years from now, the regrets about, I'm just drama. And my head's on the, my chin's on the floor, and one day a counselor says, you look like hell. I said, how dare you say that to me? I got three days in detox. I should look pristine. And, uh, you know, I'm not shaving yet and all of this. And um, that's when they made a decision for me. And desperation, which was screaming louder than the eagle, thank you, God, allowed me to listen to them. I was petrified. But they said, we're sending you out to Minnesota. You need to get out of the Northeast. Something called people, places, and things, which I thought was therapeutic nonsense. It's very, very real. I've studied a lot about this stuff. It's very, very real. They said, we're sending you to Minnesota. And uh, I lived out there. I was away for a whole year. Treatment, halfway, three-quarter, the whole thing. Looking back on it now, it was the best thing that God gave to me.
because it got me traction with you. I would go to meetings and to myself, I would say, I need to be on your team because anything I've ever done has blown up. I'm a drunken bum. I need to get on your team. I saw the 12 and 12 on the wall. I would see the big books. I would hear these old timers coming from a place I never heard before. They looked impeccable behind the podium. They would take me to the diner. They would invite me into their home and they were doing life stuff but not on the same ground I'm used to. They were doing life, almost transcending life. They were doing it from a godly place. How do you get there? I would hear these tough guys get up there and tell stories. I didn't believe they had tough guys in Minnesota. They do. And they would tell these stories about the rough and tumble days, and they were refined from behind the podium and were godly men. They wore watches and wedding rings. I said, how do you, how do, you do this? How do I get on this team? Because I have nothing else going for me. I'm so grateful that desperation screamed louder than my ego. Because anytime my ego has taken over, I start to run the show. And it's good for a little while. And then I lose my way again. And I'm back to God. I'm bending knees saying, please help. 14 years old, I have my first drunk in uh, Brooklyn. And I had no idea that my alcoholism is about to get a life and start to breathe by taking mine. I couldn't see it, because that's what it does. It gets a life by taking one. But my first drunk, I watched the guys drink cold 45 beer. They seem to be joyous, happy, and free. They're roughhousing, flirting with the girls on the corner. The music was cool. Everything just, it was, a, it was a scene. It was an event, especially in the summertime, Saturday nights on a street corner. It was a thing happening. We listened back then to good music. It was before MTV and disco ruined everything. It was, it was soul. It was Motown and rock. I mean, that's what the guys were listening to. It was wonderful. How do you get like that? How do I get on that team? And one Saturday night, I grabbed a quart of beer. It was cold 45 beer and began to drink. And halfway through a quart of beer, I'm feeling something I never experienced before. Our big book talks about a sense of ease and comfort. I can breathe. See, I don't realize how much bondage I'm in until I taste a little bit of freedom. Yeah. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. I bet everyone in this room has been in one bad relationship. <laughs> and we know what a bad relationship sounds like. We know what it feels like. And then for whatever reason, you get out. You look back and say, oh, my God, how did I stay in that relationship? I like being single. or I met someone who really enjoys me. And you look back and say, what was I thinking? My first drunk... I realized how much bondage I had been living in. I'm all but 14. And I realized I'm never going to be sober again. I never want to be sober again. The idea of going to school on Monday morning sober was frightening as heck. I tasted the honey. It's got to last for eternity. I want to stay in this cocoon of ease and comfort forever. I don't do life well. I can't live life on life's terms. I still can't. And I don't offer that to anyone. Because for me, living life on life's terms means I need a double vodka to get out of bed. And I need more of everything. I'm a glutton. I'm slothful. I'm envious. I'm prideful. I'm greedy. I'm angry. I got it all. But I'm sober. What I need was a spiritual connection. When I was drunk that night, I remember, I look back on it now, the fear I had of my dad growing up wasn't there that night. And this god-awful pain, this, this knot in my gut about burying my mom about six months early was also removed. 
I didn't feel inferior, nor did I feel inadequate. I felt really good about me and about everything else. I was looking at the world through different lenses for the first time. Alcoholic ones, but they were good. And when I woke up the next morning, I was not hungover. I didn't wake up in a jail cell. No one was looking for me. I woke up ready to do it again. And that's what I did the following Saturday. And progression does what progression does. And I don't know about you, but I always, when I start drinking, I get stuck in the more. M-O, you know, M-O-R-E, I get stuck in more. Need more. You go puke, come back, give me more. You know, throw beer down your nostrils to make room. Give me more. And I, I, I don't want to break a tradition, but when the, the arm, the veins in the arm collapse, you look for new veins. I need more. It's just the way it goes. And I'm drinking on weekends, and consequences start to show up. And as Bill says, there were many unhappy scenes in his sumptuous apartment. We didn't have a sumptuous apartment. It was my dad and three boys. It was more like Marine boot camp. It wasn't warm and fuzzy. My dad figured... He had to control the three of us, so we stay out of trouble. It worked for two out of three, because I was always in trouble. And there was a lot of barking. Where were you yesterday? Where were you last night? And it went on and on and on. My family moved from Brooklyn out to Staten Island. I really thought that was a punishment by God to move me out there, because I was only out there for a few times. And when I was out there, I stopped mixing with the wrong people, and I got a lot of trouble. And I was told I wasn't allowed on Staten Island anymore. At the, at the end. I made my first treatment center, not because I admitted I, I had a problem with alcohol. I got caught stealing. I was stealing from my dad, the wrong guy to steal from. This is a guy who doesn't smile when he's happy. This is not a, the guy you want to steal from. But I figured it's my dad. He's got plenty of money. What's the difference? And I was stealing from his checkbook. I was forging his name on a check and going down to the local bodega. They all knew who he was. And they knew I was lying. But they didn't want him walking in. So they cash a check for 20 bucks. I take the 20 bucks and then I buy beer. I go to the liquor store and I was doing stuff like this. And then I got caught. And my dad found me in lower Manhattan and he wasn't happy to see me. I wasn't happy to see him. Um, I remember sitting in the car with this young lady I had met the night before, and I thought I was like, you know, Dirty Harry meets Snoop Dogg. I mean, I thought I was a player. And uh, my dad drove up, and I was in a lot of trouble. And um, when he was screaming at me, I blamed the girl in the car. I blamed the guys in the neighborhood. I pulled out the old trump card. Mom died. I'm all mixed up. I'm confused. I don't know what I'm doing. And I went went to my first treatment center. And they did the 28-day, 30-model thing that they had back in the day. That's what insurance deemed you were cured after 28, 30 days. And I did basically a car wash with no engine in the car. That's what I was doing. You know, I looked nice and sounded good after 30 days, but I hadn't conceded to my innermost self. I'm alcoholic. So I got discharged and was drunk in an hour. And my second treatment center, drunk in an hour. My third treatment center, drunk in an hour. My fourth treatment center, drunk in an hour. My fifth treatment center, they put me in there for nine weeks. Back then, that was unheard of, nine weeks stay inpatient treatment. That was unheard of, unless you were in a psych ward. But somehow they managed to put me in this place for nine weeks. Now, after nine weeks of being in an inpatient lockdown facility, 
You start to put on weight, you get some color in your face, they're taking me to a little fitness center. You know, I'm working out a little bit, I'm on the treadmill, I'm lifting weights, I'm going to group, I'm off the medication, and I start to, I'm bathing, I'm shaving, I'm washing my hair. I look relatively human, and they had to discharge me after nine weeks because they couldn't hold on to me anymore, and I gave the typical AA response, I know what I need to do. Until I hit the fresh air, and I had no clue what to do. I mean, I don't know where to go. I have no money, I have no girlfriend, and I have no job. I didn't even know how to ask a girl out on a date at this point. I didn't have girlfriends. It was kind of being on the street. And if she's got alcohol and drugs, I'm in love with her. And you kind of run together thinking it's a cause. I love when people come in to treat my girlfriend. Tell me about it. Well, we ran together. It's not a girlfriend. It's a running partner. Let's get clear on this. Yeah? And that's what all I was used to. You know all those voices in the head we have that talk to us all the time? Even when you're sitting in a meeting, you're worried about next week. Or you're sitting in a doctor's office and you got all the voices saying you're dead. <laughs> you're in there for sore throat. Like I heard a young guy say, I don't get headaches, I get tumors. You know, it goes like that. <laughs> or you're driving in your car and you argue with 45 people at the same time. I mean, you're furious. And then you get to the meeting and say, how are you doing? And you say, I'm wonderful. <laughs> All those voices came back as soon as I hit the fresh air, and one of them was, we need a drink right now. You need a drink. You can't get a drink, get a bump, get a pill. You need something, just take the edge off, settle the belly down, then we're going to go to AA. I went to my dad's house, and he allowed me in there for two days. Reluctantly took me in. He felt bad for me. And for two days, Saturday and Sunday, I'm crawling out of my skin. Where the obsession gets so loud, it becomes physical. It hurts. And on Monday morning, I hopped in a car that didn't belong to me. I headed down to Brooklyn, South Brooklyn. And I, uh, I, I went to this liquor store I would frequent often, except it was really early in the morning and no one was open. And I'm pacing up and down on the sidewalk. And I realize I feel like I'm going through a physical withdrawal, and I wasn't. I needed a drink. My plan was to get a pint of whiskey, get in a car, and drive home. And I had this idea it's going to be beautiful, driving in a car, you know, everyone's going to work. It's Monday morning. I'm going the opposite way. It's going to be great. I get to my dad's house. I'll chill. We'll have a father and son talk. It's going to be great. None of that happened. Because when I finally walked into the liquor store to buy a pint of whiskey, I guzzled it down. There was no easy drinking. I had to guzzle it down because I felt like I'm going through withdrawal. And you know what happened when I finished a pint of whiskey? If you're alcoholic, you know where the story goes. I had to go back in and buy a second pint of whiskey. I had to. Not getting out now. I'm in. And it locks on me, and I can't get out. So I buy a second pint of whiskey. That gets down. Now I'm drunk. Yeah? And when I'm drunk, I like to get drunker. I don't say I'm drunk and going home. More. I'm stuck in more again. I'm a glutton again. And when I get nice and drunk, I like to eat pills to get me even more insulated. I don't want to feel anything. Life hurts. It's problematic. I live in a world of impermanence. It's moving too fast. I want to be in this little cocoon of alcohol and pills and leave me alone. Put me in the corner. I'll pass out. When I come to, give me money or alcohol. Just keep feeding me. I won't be a bother to you. I want to go away. And I was delusional enough to think that when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, physically sober, that that guy who perceived life as painful and hurtful was going to suddenly vanish because I'm doing 90 meetings in 90 days. 
It ain't going to happen. That's not my experience. What I lacked was power. What I lacked was a relationship with God, and I was nowhere with that. I was using me to keep me sober, positive affirmations. Remember where I come from, keep it green, the pain of yesterday. And I keep getting drunk and drunker. And the consequences, the trapdoors have trapdoors. Go to bed angry, wake up furious. And anger throughout the whole day. The world's out to get me. Why is this happening to me? It's always about me. Self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed. It's about me all the time. I left my fifth treatment center, and as I said, I went on this drunk, and I knew, I knew the narcotics were just, they were killing me. And I knew what that withdrawal felt like. So I just started guzzling as much alcohol and pills as I can get into me, as much as I can get. I remember one night, I don't know, it was, it was before sunup, um, and I'm ro rolling through the streets of Lower Manhattan. Um, and I had this thought that if I was to get hit by a car and die, stabbed, shot, whatever it was, the neighborhood was hot back then, that I'm a John Doe. My family's not going to find out for a while. I'm a John. I have no ID. I have a cell phone. We didn't even have them back then. There was no money in my pocket. I have an Amex card or a driver's license. I'm the clothes on my. I'm a John Doe. And I remember feeling like I was in the middle of a forest screaming as loud as I can and no one can hear. It was frightening as heck. And again, trapdoors have trapdoors. I, I landed in my sixth uh, treatment center and walked out after 36 hours. Because I knew this was just, just as bogus. I hated every counselor. I hated every uh, nurse practitioner. I hated every I hated everybody, but I hated me most. See, I'm not okay with you because I'm not okay with me. And I'm not okay with me because I'm not okay with God. And what alcoholics allow me to do is get okay with God to be okay with me, and I'm okay with you. It wasn't like that back then. It was just venom all the time. And I'd have these outbursts and break things and punch things, and that's what I would do. And I walked out of my sixth treatment center, and that day, I remember when I hit the streets, I realized um, I have nowhere to lay my head tonight, and that was kind of scary. I always had an option, or a girlfriend, home, girlfriend, someplace I can crash for the night and figure things out. There was nothing like that. And I'm hungry, and I need a drink, I'm still detoxing, day and a half in, in treatment. I'm detoxing. I need, I need stuff in me, not like now. And panic, what do I do? Where am I going to get money? No one's picking up the phone. All doors are locked. I knew about panhandling. I remember the very first time uh, I was in Lower Manhattan, uh, not too far from Grand and Essex Street, if anyone knows that area. There's a train station over there. And I gave the story, I need money for a token. I panhandled. Can you help me out? I need money for a token to get on the train. My chest was going to explode. My head felt like it was going to explode from the blood rushing to my head. That I knew the whole planet was watching me to lose a panhandle. I was mortified. But I will tell you this, about the hundred times I panhandled was a way of making money. And jumping over turnstiles to get on a train was just what you did. 
It's not like I might get caught. How embarrassing. You know, I'm 28 and jumping a turnstile. How, how embarrassing if the police got to pull you over? What people are thinking, I should have a job. That's just the way you do it. Just what I did. And doing all the other legal things. It's what I do. It's the life. And I knew it was bad, but I can't get out. I can't get out of this. And that's when I prayed for death. I prayed for the end. I just wish it would end when it gets so painful. And so I lingered on the streets for a while. And as I said at the opening, this June 23rd, 1988 showed up. And after uh, uh, 10 days or so in treatment, I meet this gentleman, Vince Dowling, uh, my first real hero in AA. And my dad took me to see him. When I met this guy, I had contemporary investigation. He was dressed impeccable. His, his shirt, the, the sleeves were pressed. He had a manicure. He had a nice watch on. He had a straw hat. He looked like Dr. Bob. Impeccable. And I thought this guy was just some counselor guy. What's he going to tell me? But I'll do it. Getting good graces with my dad right now. And um, my dad sits me down in front of him. And he turns, he swivels in his chair, and he says, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. And my head, when it stopped doing a 360, I zeroed in on him. And in about 10 minutes, he gave me the Reader's Digest version of what it was like, what happened, and what it was like now for him. He was a homeless bum made out of dumpsters, the whole thing. A promising Broadway career that he blew up the whole nine. And he says, we're going to send you to Minnesota. I says, will I be able to speak to you when I'm out there? He says, I promise you that. And that's how I went. I had somebody who knew, who spoke my language. They weren't coming from a spiritual hilltop. It wasn't a counselor who was telling me about my inner feelings and my dysfunctional family. It was a drunk talking to a drunk, and he got me. And I went to Minnesota. A year later, I came home. I was invited back home. And you know what? After all that time, my dad and my family was holding their breath. He's back. It's a year but they were holding my breath. And that's when I touched for the first time the impact I had on my, the negative impact I had on my family. My middle brother didn't give me trust for about over two years into recovery. He would still look at me like, when are you going to screw this up? Wouldn't do a favor for me, wouldn't loan me a penny, nothing. He was very stoic, very formal around me, and would stare me. You know the eye, you know the eye test they do when we, you know, they, how are you today? And they're looking at your eyes like they're going to find something that says, I am drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it took a while. Our big book says there's a long period of reconstruction ahead, and it was. But what I learned was, I don't have to preach a sermon because my walk is the sermon. I was going to meetings. I had a sponsor. I'm going through the steps. I got my job back. I'm, I, on payday, I have money from the, the previous payday. I was showing up. I did AA at work, show up early, leave late. The walk was the sermon. And I was sleeping on my brother's uh, couch. Um, he, my youngest brother took me in. And I remember when I got my first uh, apartment. It was in the same building my brother was living in in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. And I moved into this place, and it was a shell. It was a one studio, uh, a studio apartment. There was nothing in it. I didn't have the phone plugged in yet, turned on yet. But I got some AA bumper stickers, and I put them on the door. First things first, you know, easy does it. Put them on the door. That was how I decorate, by the way. And, um, and I had a crucifix above the door. I'm a Catholic. And I had a Bible that... Uh, 
I don't know where I got it till this day. I had a Bible, and I had a big book, which I was working out of. It was a working big book. And a woman in AA called me aside at my first home group, the Free Spirit Group. She says, honey, congratulations. I heard you got an apartment. This is what the old timers would do. They would nurse you back to health. They would bring you into the tribe. And she went to her car. She took out a sleeping bag and gave me a sleeping bag. And I slept in the sleeping bag that night with a big book and a Bible next to me, my AA bumper stickers. I had a job. I was an AA member. I had a home group. I had a sponsor. I'm in the steps. I got a crucifix above the door. I slept in a Ritz-Carlton that night. It was fabulous. It was glorious. And I slept, if you will, head up and shoulder square for the first time in a long time. Another AA woman got me, uh, uh, gave me an old black and white television. So I want you to have this. My sponsor gave me, uh, we used to have these things called futons. They were like, count, remember those? And that way I had kind of a bed. I saved up enough money, bought my first box spring and mattress. Oh my God, you, you would thought I invented electricity that day. When they delivered that thing and I jumped in this big queen size, it took up the entire apartment. I don't care, no one's coming over. This big bed in this little apartment. I remember rolling around like a kid on Christmas morning that I bought this, I'm paying my rent, I'm clean and sober, and I have my own bed to sleep in with my own pillows and my own mattress and comforter and all that. I had the whole thing going. I couldn't believe this was actually happening to me. I can't believe this is happening to me. And I would pop out of bed, I'd pray and meditate and go to work. What Thomas Merton talks about, that there's a difference between looking for comfort and experiencing spiritual joy. What God was giving me then with a simple mattress and an old black and white TV and sleeping on in a sleeping bag or a futon was spiritual joy. It was pure, total gratitude. Comfort, when I'm seeking comfort, for me it's a four-letter word. I'm seeking comfort based on what I think I need to be comfortable, not necessarily good. And it, it, it wavers. It changes with the weather. It changes with circumstances what I need to be comfortable. I need her in my life, and I find out I'm not dating an angel. I'm dating Satan. Not good. I need this job. I'm making money. I found like I hate the job, and the money got old. Spiritual joy is completely different. That comes from deep in the soul. That secret place. The carpenter talked about going into the secret place. We can have a secret place, a private spot in a house where we pray and meditate, but he's talking about going deep in here. And when I'm operating out of here, that spiritual joy, nothing can touch it. Nothing will push it. Nothing will affect it because it's God. And when we feel that, it could be for simple things. That's real gratitude. I ain't getting drunk on that. I go from misery and bliss and anger and frustration to, oh, my God, I'm sleeping in a sleeping bag and I'm safe. It's secure. This is the two locks on the door. No one can get me. And no one's looking for me. How to get here? And as I move through the steps, I start to clean up my wreckage of my past in step nine. The experiences that God gave me in cleaning up the wreckage of my past, I don't have time to talk about that. But it was life-changing to walk away convinced that I'm known by, knowing that I'm known by my creator, I knew it here, not up in here. It was a shift. My, everything changed. My roots were grasping new soil. And I knew that God had his eye on me. Sometimes I forget that. And sometimes I want to take over. I want to get into the self-will, uh, self-will and riot car. It doesn't go very far. 
but there's just something about a total surrender, a daily surrender, daily dying for successful living. When I'm in line with God, I'm traveling light, and I'm grateful for little things. I'm grateful for folding laundry and washing clothes on a Saturday night. I don't have to be on Las Olas making a scene. I'm grateful for having a slice of pizza with Marion on a Saturday night in some pizza place because I'm with somebody I adore and we're together and it's totally cool. We're both sober. Long-standing members in AA. Never had it so good. I don't need that. It's nice to have, but I don't need... It's the difference between I would like to have that and I need to have that. And one thing my mind will do is have my, need, my wants get dressed up as needs. That's what happens when I'm running the show. So I'm very grateful that, that my family, little by slowly, has been put back together. And my brothers and I are, are kind of caring for my dad the way he cared for us because his age is getting to him, and he, he slowed down a bit, and he's, he's, he could see it, and he knows it. So my brothers and I let him rent. Oh, when he's in a happy mood, let him be happy and smoke all the cigarettes he's want. He's not going to quit at 85. You know, and, and, you know, complain about everything. And he watches Fox News all day long and calls me up and gives me the daily reports. Just when I thought I was out, he pulls me back in. Um, so, but it's, uh, it's, it's great. It's great. I got to be, because of Alcoholics Anonymous and God, I got to be a son to my dad. And I'll just, I'll, I got two minutes, so I'll just tell you this. Very often, Marion has a great phrase, God laid something on my heart. I never heard that before. I would say God spoke to me. But when God lays something on your heart, it's there. He's going to put his thumbprint on you. You don't have to write it down. It's just with you. Sometimes we get inspiration and thoughts. Let me write that down. And sometimes it comes from him. It's like, it's with me. It's, it's in here. And one day I'm, I'm meditating and, and, and God just downloaded something. It may not mean much to you, but for me, it's, it's just, it has stayed with me. It just makes perfect sense. And often when God downloads something like that, it makes perfect sense to the receiver. It doesn't make a difference if no one else gets it. Yeah? Because I'm the one in the relationship with God the way you have your own. The only thing God wants from me is my soul. See, I've trampled on it for years. The only thing he wants from my soul, he doesn't need the money, the car, he doesn't need the job. He's God. He doesn't have to write inventory go to an AA meeting. The only thing he wants from me is my soul. Step three, kind of, for me, that's what step three is about. My thinking, my action, I'm saying, here, God, I screwed it up. Please fix it. My life is none of my business. The only thing God wants from me is my soul, and I gave him my soul, and he's given me a life. Yeah? I give him my life, and he's given me purpose. I've given him my sinfulness over and over and over again, and he continues to give me forgiveness. I've given God my drunkenness, and he's given me sobriety. I give God my sobriety. He's given me the sacred rooms called Alcoholics Anonymous. And for this, I'm overpaid and very blessed to be a member of Good Standing and Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm not embellishing, everything I have in my life, I owe to God in AA. That includes the clothes I'm wearing, my relationship with Mary and my friends, the laptop, my little laptop that I do Zoom with, the apartment I live in, the car I drive, everything, everything is because of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. So I stand on the firing line and sometimes draw fire. That's okay. And pass this message on with the same love and gratitude that has been freely given to me every time I walk into an AA meeting and say, my name is Peter, I'm an alcoholic.
Yeah? That's all I got. Peace. Let's give a round of applause for Peter one more time. Thank you. And we're going to have Mark come up and do the secretary's report. Hey, everyone. My name is Mark. I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going to go around. Well, that's going on. I got Kathy coming up here to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering. And what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic? Here's that. Hi, I'm Kathy. I am an alcoholic. Hi. We're not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we'd be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The, alcoholic, the allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Kathy, 1940s-style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them sobered up after some relapses. Among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics in the room tonight? Okay, does anybody need a sponsor? Please reveal yourself. Not one, huh? All right. If you do, get with someone with their hand raised anyway. Let's get these folks back to God. Last meeting of the month, it's March 31st, so we, we do a quick recognition of people with anniversaries in the month of March. If anyone would like to make that recognition. We got a, we got a couple. We got three. Uh, we'll start in the back. Go ahead. Stand up. Just a uh, name and uh, sobriety date. Or, or uh, <laughs> years. Sorry. Congrats. Congrats, all you guys. Oh, hey Zach. Great work, God. <laughs> uh, a couple quick announcements. There's a lot going on in town, actually. Um, well, first of all, we have Bobby R coming here next week. She's doing a nine-week series. What else is going on? Anything? Oh, we got Broward County Intergroup. It's your AA warehouse. If you need 
books, medallions, other literature. BCIC, that's, uh, that's for when people can't get out to meetings, as we are so fortunate to do so. Is anyone on that committee that would like to talk about it? No? Okay. Sober Camping Conference, from what I understand, is this weekend, right? Hugh Taylor, Birch State Park. If anyone wants to do that, get outdoors. The weather is great. Plenty of volunteer opportunities. We've got Founders Day Picnic at Snyder Park. And we have the state convention right on Fort Lauderdale Beach. Still needs volunteers. And that's the Founders Day Picnic again. Snyder Park starts at 2 p.m. It's free. You have to pay for parking, I hear, but it's free besides that. So that's, uh, that's this weekend. And then, of course, you know, the, the best group in town, Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose, big book group. Um, Mondays, you can get with the Crunch Monkeys on the third floor of this building. We read the big book where the big book comes alive. Fellowship's at 6.30. The workshop starts at 7.15. Also, to my left... We have CDs, mugs, large print big books, little red books, and big book dictionaries for sale. See myself or any other home group member if you're interested in that stuff. We meet here every Thursday, starting promptly at 7.15. Like I said, Bobby will be here for the next nine weeks. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. See you all next week. Uh, we have tonight's session and all past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Um, and to those who would like to thank Pete, you can light up down the center aisle. We're going to close with the Lord's Prayer. You can remain seated. <coughs> Our Father, Our Father, Lord,
possessions that I have amount to nothing at all. Shining through 
and rain. So stop your singing, baby, and be happy again. Yes, and keep on smiling.
Michael Chase. Here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Got one man that just wants to set me free. Well, clap your 
Thank you.